So I'm going to sit down, and I do want to mention to you that this is a very comfortable chair, and if you see me nod off, I'd just like you to get up quietly and leave, okay? <laughs> it's kind of weird to preach sitting down. Um, I, I, I am a person who, uh, I can feel it on Sunday morning. My adrenaline gland just begins to throb Sunday mornings, and I kind of do my Sunday ministry on adrenaline. And, uh, you know, I never want to mistake that for the Holy Spirit. He's great to have, but the adrenaline doesn't hurt, hurt either. Um, and sitting down, it's hard to have any adrenaline. It's hard to be like, so this is what it means, you know. Uh, it's, uh, it's kind of weird to do this. Um, I'd like you, if you would, open your Bibles, please. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2. We're going to be in a lot of passages. There is a Bible app event that would have many of those passages right there for you. But Luke chapter 2 is a passage we're going to be reading together. And I do want to say this up front. I'm very indebted to Dane Ortland uh, for some of the material um, that I'm going to be sharing with you today. Uh, he wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly. I'm going to quote from that book at least once. And I'm indebted also to The Bible Project on, on YouTube. Has anyone ever seen The Bible Project? Yeah, Wendy, Dave, several of you guys have. My, when we were in Albuquerque here a few weeks ago, um, I was with my son and he said, we did this Bible study series in our small group from the Bible Project. And I looked at it. And Laurel's looking over my shoulder while we're looking at it. And we both looked at each other and said, Advent. And I said, no kidding. Wow, that's so good. And the Bible Project didn't mean it as Advent, but it kind of fits with that. So I'd encourage you. In fact, I might put a link on uh, our Facebook page or something to the Bible Project series uh, on this verse because it will supplement uh, what I'm going to be talking to you about today. We're actually going to read Luke's account of Christmas, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2, where it says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. She placed him in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. I guess you fill it with straw, you wrap the baby snugly in cloth, and you put him in there. It's a functional crib. It works. In the weeks ahead, I want to talk to you about what's actually hidden in that manger. But before we do that, I've got to ask you the, the question I always ask this time of year. How many of you have all your shopping, your Christmas shopping is all done? Put your hand up. Wow, this is the first time. Nobody, wow. How many of you have like a good chunk of it done? You feel pretty good about it. Put your hand up. Okay, good, good, good. How many of you like, I haven't even started? Put your hand up. You're my people. You are my people. Yeah, that's great, yeah. Yeah, the, the downside of uh, getting the Christmas presents early is where do you put them, right? Where do you hide your Christmas presents? I found a website that talked about where to hide Christmas presents this week, and uh, it had the, the predictable uh, ideas. Put them in the garage. You can put them in the attic. You can put them in the basement. You can leave them at the office. You can put them in the RV. You can put them out in a boat. But the place that surprised me most was last on their list. Listen to this. Where to hide your Christmas presents before Christmas? Under the Christmas tree. Really? Really? Hide them under the Christmas tree in plain view 
uh, is that going to work? They said, yeah, it'll probably work. Because often that which is hidden in plain view is something we miss and don't see entirely. Huh. That's one of the reasons I love Advent. Uh, Jesus, huh. just as you may miss the presence that would be sitting under the tree for you waiting for Christmas morning, it's easy to miss what's hidden in that manger. And Advent helps us avoid that. I mean, I like Christmas trees. I like Christmas songs. I like Christmas specials, especially that one about the green guy whose heart grew three sizes that day. And I like Santa. I like cookies. I like presents. But hidden among all that, there's someone in a manger, hidden in plain sight. And it's easy to miss him. It's easy to miss him, not just because of all the Christmas stuff, but it's easy to miss him even when it's not Christmas. It's easy to miss him in this broken world. When I was in the hospital, my roommate learned that I was a pastor. I used to dislike that, like, oh, good night. Now I can't swear anymore in front of him. <laughs> Just kidding. I really like it when, when that kind of circumstance happens, because if they, if they have questions, I get to help, you know? And he had a question, and I may not remember this correctly, because I was still under anesthesia when we were talking about this, I, I believe. But as I recall, he was, he was concerned about people in his family who seemed to be losing their faith. And the reason that they were losing their faith was not because of some pain they'd had or some heartache or, or something, but rather as they were looking at society and how society is portraying God and his word, they were seeing an angry, mean, wrathful, careless God. And they said, I don't know if I believe in the angry God. And they were tying him to the scripture. He said, I'm afraid that some of my family members are becoming atheists. Huh. Hmm. They were looking for the goodness of God. They just weren't seeing it. How about you? Have you ever been looking for the goodness of God and found it quite easy to lose track of in a society that's marked by sickness, injustice, abuse, racism, war, poverty, hunger, people living and dying without adequate health care? When you see those kinds of things, it's easy, even for, even for long-time Christians, even for long-time Christians, it's easy to say, Where's this goodness of God that Christians are always talking about? I want to suggest to you that it's there. It's hidden in plain view. About 150 pages into his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland speaks plainly noting this. Potentially, he says, this is the point of our walk with Christ on earth. I don't know if you can see those little tiny letters up there. Why don't I read them for you? Would that be good? Listen as I read. And Ortland writes in a way that I find difficult to read aloud. So if I stumble, that's why. The Christian life, from one angle, is a long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. This is hard work. It takes a lot of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. The fall in Genesis 3 not only sent us into condemnation and exile, the fall also entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God. Thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. Perhaps, 
Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. That is a great group of words to kind of try to get your brain around. It is easy to lose track of the goodness of God. And Advent helps us with that. Advent. We, we just read that passage from Luke that ended with, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. The focal point of Advent is not Mary. It's not Joseph. It's not wise men. It's not shepherds. It's not angels. The focal point of Advent is Jesus. He is the incarnation of God. He is the enfleshment of God. He is God in human form. John says it this way. He says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And all that God is, is hidden in that manger. For in Christ, the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. The goodness of God, it seems hidden, but it's hidden right in front of us. Do you ever wonder why is it that God's goodness seems hidden from us? Why do we feel like sometimes he's not always cracked up to be, he's, he's not as good as I thought he was? I think there are a number of reasons for that. I think first of all, I think we take God's goodness for granted. It's like these Appalachian mountains that we live in. First time I saw the real beauty of these mountains was uh, when I came back from a trip out west with my parents. We had just marveled at the Rocky Mountains, the, the salt flats of Utah, the desert southwest, the Pacific coast, the purple sage. We we're coming back home. We we're coming out of Ohio into Pennsylvania. The flat of Ohio becomes these rolling hills that become the Appalachians. And it was my mom who said, look at this beauty. It's been here all along. Hmm. That's the way it is with God's goodness. It's beautiful. It's been here all along. It's hidden right in front of us. We can fail to notice its presence because we take it for granted. Another reason that God's goodness kind of escapes our awareness is that pearls don't sit well before swine. That might be my favorite sentence in this whole sermon. Pearls don't sit well before slime. Swine, not slime, swine. So my last trip to Israel, I went to this gourmet coffee shop. It was kind of the last day of our tour and we were in a city. I can't remember what city we were in, but it was very populated. It was kind of like an open market, modern open market. And went and got some coffee and and they had, it was a coffee shop that had all kinds of specialty coffees there. They didn't have the kind of coffee that you add flavors to and nuts and candy and women's perfume to. It was real coffee that had kind of a real, they had excellent blends. But I was not yet the con- connoisseur that I kind of am regarding coffee. And I'd been gone for, you know, about 10 days and I was kind of missing home. And I looked at the barista, she spoke English, and I said to her, uh, man, can you make me a coffee like they have in America? And with a very slight look of disgust on her face, <laughs> she said, American coffee. Really? Okay, I'll fix you a Starbucks. And she did. 
I don't think she minded doing that, but I've often thought what was going through her mind when she did that. Eh, it's just as well that this guy isn't buying our exotic coffee. I mean, giving him our specialty blends would be like putting these pearls, my gourmet coffee drinks, before this Starbucks drinking American swine. I don't know if she felt that way or not. But that's what that phrase means. That's what that phrase about. It came from Jesus. He's speaking in a very specific context. And, and he says, you don't offer something of great value, a pearl, to pigs who could never really and enjoy it or appreciate it. Don't do it. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. I think that if God wants to show his goodness to us and we don't want it, we won't see it. I think often we miss God's goodness because we're looking for something else. He'd like to give us a pearl, but we were hoping for an M&M or maybe some kind of a gumball instead of a pearl. If we aren't seeing the goodness of God, I wonder if it's because of how we would react if it was in front of us. I know I've missed a lot of God's goodness in my own life because I have arrogantly thought that I understood what goodness was better than God understood what goodness was. That's not the case. Pearls don't sit well before swine. There's a third reason God's goodness seems hidden from us, and that reason is because the enemy blinds us to God's goodness. The Bible teaches this in 2 Corinthians 4. In verse 3 it says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled from those who are perishing. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If Satan can entertain us with mud pies, we'll certainly not be looking for a trip to the beach. This Advent... We're going to focus on a passage of scripture that the Sunday evening group looked at a few weeks ago. It's in Exodus 34. I'm going to put it on the screen for you in a moment. But first, I want to give you some context of it. God has given Moses the Ten Commandments. And Moses comes down carrying these brand new shiny Ten Commandments that have been written with the finger of God. He brings them down to the bottom of the mountains and he sees the people are there just having a wild kind of an orgy worshiping this false god, this idol. And in Exodus 31, 19, we read when Moses approached the camp and he saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. By the next chapter, God has reissued the Ten Commandments. Moses is presenting them and he asks God for a favor. He says, I'd like to see a glimpse of your glory. It's in Exodus thirty-three, eighteen. Let me just read it to you. It says, then Moses said, now show me your glory. Now think about that sentence for a minute. God, show me your glory. Show me your firepower. Show me your majesty. Show me your strength. Let me see some stuff. Show me your glory, God. It's a reasonable request. It would really increase my confidence, God, if I saw how incredibly powerful you are as I go down to lead these people. Would you do that for me? God's response is unexpected and fascinating. In the very next verse, listen to what God says. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. 
Did you notice it? Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I'll show you my goodness. It is almost as though God's glory is not a matter of thunder and lightning, but rather a matter of compassion and mercy and goodness. Look at what the Bible says in Exodus 34.6. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. It says, it, it, it recounts that moment when God actually shows him his glory, his goodness. Speaking of God, it says, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Can I read that to you again? The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Dane Ortland says that if we could pick only one passage from the Old Testament to answer the question of who God is, who is God, it would be hard to imp- improve on that verse. And there's suggestion that next to the incarnation of God in Jesus, this may be the best revelation of God ever presented. And I remember when I first read that, I said, are you kidding? Dane, are you kidding? I don't know, man. It wasn't Dane's idea to present the revelation of God this way. It was God himself. Moses says, show me your glory. God says, this is who I am. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at those words. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, loyally loving and faithful. But today, I want you to see that the manger is filled with the first of those words, compassion. You can see the compassion of Christ in the Christmas story. The compassion of God right from the start. An angel comes to Mary and informs her of what's about to take place. That's compassionate. An angel goes to Joseph and says, don't do anything rash. That's compassionate. As he's talking to Joseph, he reveals something of the compassion of God in Christ when he says, she will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. That's compassionate. It's really easy to see that compassion is an emotional word. I can remember growing up every now and then you'd bump into those people who would when you were kind of excited about God or excited about some worship service or some retreat you were on or camp, someone would say, well, you know, Christianity is not emotionalism. I wanted to kind of tone it down, I guess. I'm not really sure if you grew up hearing that at all. I heard that a lot. I think Christianity is pretty emotional from God's end. From God's end, there's a lot of emotion involved. They say that the opposite of the word love is not the word hate but rather the opposite of the word love is indifference. It is um, looking at someone who's suffering with that Jerry Seinfeld and George Costanza kind of look and just saying, that's a shame while you keep eating your popcorn. That's a shame. That's indifference. That's the opposite of love. But indifference is something that you will never, ever, ever, ever 
find hidden in the manger. What you will find there is compassion. And you know what compassion feels like. I mean, if you've had a child come home who was bullied on the bus, you know compassion, and it is a strong emotion. If you'd had a friend who has a broken heart, and they're pouring that out to you, you know compassion, and you know it's a heavy emotion. If you have someone who's had to give up on a dream, you know compassion. It's an intense emotion. And that's what's in the manger. Compassion. Compassion is an emotional word and it is an action word. I mean, if you say you have compassion and you have the means to do something and you do nothing about it, you do not have compassion. James speaks of this in chapter 2 when he says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food And if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, be well fed, but does nothing to help their physical needs, what good is it? James is intensely practical about living out his Christian faith. He wants us to help those who are in need. But Advent isn't about cracking the whip and telling us we need to be more compassionate. Advent is about showing us what is in the manger. And what is in the manger is the God who is compassion. He takes action regarding our need. One of my favorite verses, you've heard me say it maybe hundreds of times in, in, through the years, is where God compares his compassion to that of a nursing mom. And he asks, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on a child she has born? No, she may forget, I will not forget you. And by the way, in the context there, it appears that Israel has all but forgotten about God. But he never forgets us. And in his great compassion, he acts. In his great compassion, he rescues. He went to the cross to rescue you and me. It was a kind of compassion toward us that lets us know with that kind of love, with that kind of compassion in the manger, how can we go wrong? What's in the manger? Compassion. That word compassion, it's a word of relationship. It's a word of connection. The English word calm passion actually comes from two Latin words. The first is passio and the second is calm. Passio means suffer and calm means with. And so compassion in our English understanding of it means to suffer with someone. And when we say God has compassion on us, we're saying that God connects with us in our suffering. And Advent demonstrates that compassion like little else. I mean, God connects with us by leaving heaven and coming to earth. The old Christmas carol, out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe, only his great eternal love made my Savior go. Compassion. That's what's in the manger. And God connects with us by arriving here and becoming one of us. I mean, that's a pretty big leap from the throne of heaven to a manger on earth. It's a pretty big sacrifice, letting go of the privileges of deity. And God did it as an act of compassion to connect with us in our suffering. That's what's in the manger. God connects with us by carrying our guilt and our shame to the cross. Scripture says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everything, everyone who is hung on a pole. He did it out of a heart of compassion, a willingness to connect with humankind in their suffering. 
That's what's in the manger. Compassion. This Advent, (laughs) I hope that you can focus your eyes on what's in the manger. I hope that you can see the goodness of God, specifically this week, His compassion, the goodness of God that is right in front of you. But you will have to focus your eyes on that compassion. Often it seems to me that the goodness of God is a little bit like those 3D puzzles, uh, pictures that you used to look at. Do you remember those computer-generated ones? And you had to set your eyes just right in order to see what was inside of there. The goodness of God requires a similar exercise, but it's not with your eyes. It's with your heart and with your spirit. Because Dane Ortland is right. The Christian life, from one angle, is a long journey of letting go of our natural assumption about who God is. Over many decades, fall away being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. I read that wrong. Let me say it again. I told you Ortland is hard to read. It's on the screen. Follow along. The Christian life, from one angle, is a long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. We are prone to define God in our own ways, ways that may not be as fitting as we'd like to believe they are. So I hope you can make it your aim to let God define himself. Don't settle for the ways you've always thought of him, ways that are inadequate. But I hope that as we look into the manger this Advent season and look and see what's hidden there, it will reshape and refine your definition of God. I hope you will fill your mind with the truth about God's goodness. I hope that you will see his compassion that reaches out to connect with you. And that you will see his grace that shows us blessing when we really deserve judgment. And you will see his patience that gives you and me one opportunity after another to turn to him. You will sense his loyal love that is there for you and keeps its promises. And you will see his faithfulness that doesn't shift, that doesn't change, that doesn't fail, that doesn't give up. I want to pray that God would use this season of Advent to show us what's in the manger. I wonder if you would stand with me and we'll pray to that end before we sing, shall we? Let's bow our hearts together. Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you came and that we remember your arrival in the Christmas season here. We are thankful for your compassion to us. That you in your heart felt a love that is not unlike the love of a mother. Not unlike the love of a father for us. And that your compassion moved you to act, to rescue us, to even become one of us, to suffer with us, that you might be with us and we with you. God, when we consider the images of God that might be counter to this heart of compassion, I pray that you will reframe our thinking and refocus our thinking. That when you chose to show us who you were, you used the word compassion 
And you showed us your compassion through what is in the manger, through who is in the manger, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's conclude our time singing, Thou didst leave thy throne.